Good morning. How are we feeling? Good. Uh, for all UT fans, the blessing is that there are mercies that are new every morning with the Lord. And uh, yesterday ended last night. As I came in, um, both uh, Aaron and Brian asked me, they said, dude, you got to capitalize, man. I mean, this is like the day. If you were going to ever rub in the fact that you're a Florida fan, today is the day. And I said, you know, here's the thing. Not everyone's that immature, you know, not, not everyone has to do something like that, you know, like put on all their Florida garb just to prove a point, you know, you don't have to do that, but it is a funny thing. Is it not hot in here to you? I mean, sometimes it may just be me, but I get under these lights and sometimes it just gets a little warm. You know, and while, while there are many people who don't have to be that mature, I'm not one of those folks, <laughs> you know? So for Lynn, I love you. And the swamp is a hard place to play. You don't have to go back there for two years. So take solace. Today, we are titling our message, Where is Your Confidence? And as we turn the corner in Philippians 3, Paul is going to give us seven verses that really help us understand that it's easy for us to make a subtle shift in our minds. It's very easy for us, those of us specifically who've been doing this for quite some time, we've been in the church uh, world, the religious thing for a while, we can make a subtle shift in our mind and our confidence actually moves from being accurately placed in him to place it in ourselves. And we're going to look at the three places where he highlights us placing that, um, that confidence, that misplacing of that confidence. And that is in our own heritage. Sometimes we can place it in our heritage. We can misplace our confidence, the confidence to do him in our own ritual. And we can misplace our confidence in our own works. So if you are able, I ask you to stand as we read Philippians 3, 1 through 7 together says this further my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you watch out for those dogs those evildoers those mutilators of the faith for it is we who are the circumcision we who serve God by his spirit who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteous based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss... For the sake of Christ. Father, as we turn to your word, I just pray that you would help us to recognize the places where we might in our mind or our heart, maybe even subtly, we haven't recognized that we're doing it, placed confidence or misplace our confidence in what we do, maybe in ourselves, and have taken the confidence that it is due Jesus that is actually establishing our faith, and we'll put it accurately back him. So I pray today that we would not outgrow the cross. I pray that we would turn to the cross and in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. 
Paul says here, if you were to compare me to another person, I mean, based on my resume, based on my resume, even another Jew, the chosen people of God, which, of, of which I am one. If you were to compare me to another person, I'm going to come out pretty good in the end. And how many of us have a tendency to compare ourselves to others? We go, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not that guy. He says, I, I'm going to come out pretty good considering my own resume. However, in the end, I will not be compared to other people, not even another person. In the end, I'll be compared to God. And that's where I do come up short. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I come up short when compared to him. I, I end in wanting. We all do apart from those who are in Christ Jesus, apart from him clothing us in his righteousness. Now, here's what is taking place in this text. He's trying to remind us, he's trying to warn us that people like myself who have a pedigree like myself, Paul says, have come in um, to the church, they've come to Christ, but because of their pedigree, because of their astute nature, have started to take those who were less astute and, and shift their their, their mindset or their confidence a little bit. He has taken those who were maybe pharisaical in their old day, but now they've come to Christ and they say, okay, for anyone who is a Gentile, we're gonna worship with Gentiles. For any of them who were not of the covenant, were not a people of God, before you can actually become a Christian, you must be circumcised. And they would put impositions on people who were coming to faith that were not required by the gospel. And that's what Paul's fighting for here. He's fighting against what is a false gospel. And anytime we take a purity and you, uh, you put it next to something else, faith plus gospel plus, it becomes something altogether different. I'll give you an example. My daughter loves to make slime, okay? Loves it. If you guys know what slime is, you know what I'm talking about. If I, my daughter loves to make slime and she makes lots of different colors and sizes. And I think there's multiple recipes. Uh, I was looking those up because uh, she has put slime all over my carpet and ruined the carpenter room. And so I was looking up the different recipes that, uh, of slime in order to know how to get this out of my carpet. And I found one of the simplest recipes for slime is actually um, contact solution and Elmer's glue. Okay, so like contact solution, something that is intended to clean your contact, it can go in your eye safely, you know, so that you can see, mixed with Elmer's glue, get slime. Now, I don't foresee anyone this afternoon going back to your house, knowing that is the, one of the recipes for slime, taking slime and trying to put it in your eye, hoping you can draw out some contact solution, clean your contacts, clear things up, Right? But something that was clearly designed for your own clarity of sight gets ruined when it becomes mixed with something else. Understand? So the gospel loses its purity the moment it becomes faith plus. And this is what these dogs, Paul says, are trying to do. And it's interesting that he would use this term because dogs in the Jewish faith were reserved, that title was reserved for Gentiles. Those who were outside of the covenant, those who were not the chosen people of God. He says these evil doers, he calls the mixing of that faith, the mixing of that faith with 
requirement within the law, making it something altogether different, a new gospel, a false gospel. He calls that evil. And he says, they, in fact, are dogs. He calls what they knew as Gentiles in the requirement of these religiously astute who are coming in and putting imposition on said Gentiles. Like, no, don't misconstrue things. The dog here is the one making the imposition. And so he says, where is your confidence? It may be a little misplaced. Maybe your confidence is misplaced in your heritage, much like these dogs. Maybe your confidence is misplaced. Again, he goes through and he says, now, if any one of these guys wanted to place confidence in their heritage, I'm more so. I've got a resume, a litany that just puts them to shame. I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he says again, for it was me, uh, I have reason to put more confidence in flesh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, my pedigree is pharisaical. I'm a Pharisee. So anyone who wants to place confidence in the heritage is a people that fundamentally believe that they can, because of their pedigree, be excused that they're better, that they're good, that they are simply okay. Now, this, this loses a little bit of context for us. Let me be clear. It would hold a lot of weight for them, coming, uh, many Jewish converts coming into faith in Christ in the, New, in the New Testament church in the first century. It loses a little bit for us, but I, I, think that it, I think that we can get there. So for them, they're holding a lot to the fact that in Genesis 17, you see the Abrahamic covenant established. The sign of said Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Now, in, in Genesis 17, just to give you the simplest, we've looked at Abraham, but we know the story there. Abraham was old and his wife old and barren, but God made a promise in Genesis 17 that he would make him a, a descendants that were countless. He would make the father of many nations. All right, so what we're going to look at here, the miraculous nature of God was a precursor to the gospel itself as he was going to take that which was dead, this reproductive organ that was dead, and from it he was going to bring fruit, he was going to bring life. And as a sign of said deadness and life coming from the deadness, we're going to make a physical picture on the body of the male, the one that I've made this covenant with, and we're going to remove the foreskin. And so he says, circumcision, this picture, anyone who is circumcised is a picture of being in said covenant. The, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees and he said, who, they asked, who are you? Who is your father? He said, well, who is your father? They said, our father's Abraham. He goes, no, 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 no. Now, if your father was Abraham, do you understand who it is that you're talking to? It is you're challenging. But see, because his covenant, the, the covenant that we have at the cross, Christ's covenant, supersedes the Abrahamic covenant. It takes the place thereof. It fulfills what was simply intended to be a precursor, life from death. But they're holding to that. And he was, they're trying to require of those who have never had these, these requirements placed on them that they need to go through a process like they had that shows that they can get there. Like they're saying your heritage wasn't good enough. Your bloodline was a dog. So you can't simply jump 
you can't jump the step of circumcision. You need to do this. And in Galatians, Paul was actually having these people come against him in, in the requirement of them trying to ask Titus, a Gentile who was a disciple of Paul, to be circumcised. He said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And so they said, no, we kind of demand if Titus is going to have any fruit of ministry here with us, then he, like you, must be circumcised. He said, no, no, we're not doing that. I don't care what you demand. We're not going to do that because that is taking away from the fruit of the gospel. The truth is the veil's been torn and we don't need a priest. He's our high priest. Hello? So the veil's been torn. We can go directly to him. And, And we have a tendency to identify with where they're coming from by placing so much value in heritage when we say things like this. Well, I was born into the church. I've just been here my whole life. I want to encourage anyone here, and we need, we need to listen to this. Just because we were born in the church does not mean that you are, in fact, in Christ. Just because we've been raised around spiritual community does not mean that we have personal faith ourselves. No one here is free by association. There is no genetic ranking, thankfully, in Christianity. Not all were Jewish, and that's actually the point of Christianity. So what Paul's trying to remind here in saying that I won't do that for Titus, I don't expect it of anyone here in the Philippians church, what he's saying is, is this, that the actual point of the gospel is that we were all outsiders. We were all outsiders, and we've been welcomed in through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. His atoning work took his righteousness and placed it upon us while our unrighteousness was placed on him. That he went to the cross and took what we deserved in our unrighteous, self-worshipping state, just selfish, only thinking of ourselves. That was placed on him and he took what we deserved and the Father took his righteousness in the defeating of the grave three days later and placed that upon us. Kind of like Jesus uh, explained in Luke 15, the prodigal son and the father. It says, when the prodigal son came running home, the father took off his robe and put it around his son. When you read what Jonathan did with David, when he recognized that David was the next anointed king of Israel, he could see it. And he had been bypassed for the throne itself. It says that Jonathan took off his princely, his royal robe, and he covered David. We need to to look at that picture from Old to New Testament. The Father has been cloaking us in Jesus has been covering us. When he looks at us, those who are in Christ, he mostly just sees his son and the royal colors of the one on high are placed upon us. And so there is no other way that we get those colors. The prodigal son did nothing but come home and repent in humility. David did nothing to earn the royal colors. He was just simply selected and he in humility and a broken heart knelt before Jonathan weeping because he could recognize the humility and what God had done here. And Jonathan says, I just want to be your biggest fan. I want to be more about God's agenda than my own. And in order to be on board with what Paul's writing here, we got to be more concerned as he closed chapter 2, and we turn the corner to chapter 3, more concerned with God's agenda than our own. And places where we'll not get us there is, well, I've just always been here. I was born in the church. I know the Bible. I memorized it. Really? Okay. We also cannot place confidence within our rituals. This is the fundamental belief that because of our rituals that we practice, that we're okay. 
that we're seemingly excused, that things are fine for us. Here's taking that, that whole thought for the Israel, Israelite a little further, the Hebrew. That covenant picture of circumcision was incredibly important to them, but it was always intended to be a symbol, solely that. And we have a tendency today to love our relics and to love our rituals. We have a tendency in, in today's society, and it's split amongst many de- denominations. My Catholic friends have a tendency to hold to their confirmation and hold to their communion a little bit. My Church of Christ, dear Church of Christ friends, have a little bit of a tendency to hold to their water ceremony a little bit and baptism, and as if that's equal to salvation, and they're salvific in that. My, my Baptist friends have a tendency to hold to a prayer as if that prayer is the thing. Hello, you know what I'm talking about? Like we prayed a prayer when we were eight years old and kind of held to that prayer and that's kind of what we go back to, but that prayer is not found in scripture. And I'm not saying that praying a prayer is bad. In fact, I think that's the only way that we really come to the Lord and seek repentance and receive the free gift that we were given in the righteousness of Jesus. By repenting, we come to him and that's, that's prayer. But it's almost as if in some cases that we hold to the prayers if it's the thing. You know what I'm saying? And we've been banking on that prayer as if that is our proof, our hope, and our establishment of our faith is in that prayer. And he goes, no, 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 it can't be in any ritual. That's not, that's, that's placing false hope. And you have a false confidence in something that is, in fact, ending. In Colossians 2, 11 through 12, he says it this way. He says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision that was not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, stop before we get into what he's about to say. Listen, what Paul's saying is there is a circumcision and it's incredibly important. There is a circumcision that's important. There's a thing, but it's not a circumcision that is physical. It's a circumcision of the heart and it is performed for those who come to the Father, trusting in the work of Jesus, and that circumcision is performed by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that circumcision that's physical is not the thing. And he goes on and says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in this example, you can see that he mentions both physical circumcision and baptism. And he says they're both important. But we want to gather from this text what he, in simplest of terms, he says, hey, both those things are important, but neither of them can save you. There's no salvation, there's no salvific value in these things that should be celebrated, these ceremonial places. What does it tell us? That neither of these symbols can save the soul. They have no lasting effect or impact on our eternal state. They cannot change the soul. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, he goes on speaking about it. He says, hey, the washing of water, like, like the removal of dirt, like what? Like, honestly, like what does that have to do with your soul? It's, it's as if to say, it's, it's kind of like this. Um, let's say, I have a friend who loves Christmas. Anyone else love Christmas? They just love Christmas, celebration of Christmas. And I have a lot of friends who aren't believers who just, they love Christmas, you know, they celebrate. And I have, a, I have many friends who 
celebrate Christmas. I even have Jewish friends, nominal Jews, who celebrate Christmas because, you know, there's like gifts to be received in that, you know? So why not do both? Hanukkah and Christmas will do both. Let's say you have a friend who comes to us and says, you know, I've been celebrating Christmas for as long as I can remember. And I was christened on Christmas Eve in a candlelit service or a midnight mass. And I have never missed in my life midnight mass or a candlelit service on Christmas Eve. In fact, I go to more than one. And I buy gifts generously for my family, even for my friends, even for my city. I buy for the entire city. I love Christmas so much. Love it. I buy for everyone. And then I, I give turkeys every year to the homeless, to the needy. I, I go and give turkeys away and and that's how I became a Christian and it, that's how I got redeemed you know you you might look at that whole scenario and that whole argument and you go bro I don't think you celebrating something means you acquired it I don't think your celebration of an American consumeristic holiday equals your liberty in Jesus hello but we have a tendency to do this all the time, don't we? Well, I, I, I have, look at what I've done and look at where I've served and look at how I have helped and look at the good that I've done and look at the bad that I've avoided in our own minds. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that guy. Amen. Hello? And we have this tendency to compartmentalize ourselves and place our faith in our performance. We, we can place our faith in the rituals that we perform, which leads to the confidence that we unfortunately place within our own works. See, if we're holding to a prayer that was prayed or a, a water ceremony that was intended to celebrate, those things are all important, he is saying, but they're not salvific. They are a sign that salvation has taken place. They're simply something that we celebrate. They're simply a symbol. And so they can't also drive our works. If we're holding to those things and we misplace confidence in the ritual or our heritage, we really can be misguided in how we go about approaching things and in our works. And so this is the confidence, the fundamental belief when we place confidence in our works that because of the places we serve or the good deeds we do or the bad that we avoid, the consistent attendance that we, we pervade is that salvation is ours and we have a right to be blessed or hooked up by God. Let me be clear. How many of you um, know that when you work, you're entitled for payment? When we misplace our confidence in our works, we run the risk very subtly, but we can do it to do one of two things. We can either, one, judge those who don't work. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that guy. At least I showed up. Or two, demand payment for our works. There's a story that I had where I met with two sisters who were both married, and they sat down and they were having a squabble. They were having a dispute, one of which had decided to stay pure till marriage. She got married, but now was going through a brutal marriage and even more bloody divorce. And the other had made the mistake 
of, of not staying pure till marriage, but their marriage was intact, the marriage was covenant was good, and they were serving a blessed marriage. This is not, I'm not using this example as permission to disobey God. <laughs> Please hear me. But I am using it to make a point. The sister who had gone through the bloody divorce, kids are involved and pain is evident, looks at the other sister and says, I did everything right, but I'm the one who's suffering. You don't deserve to have a blessed marriage. I don't deserve to be the one who's hurting because I did everything right. Hello? And so she blasts her sister. She says, I waited. I was pure. Look at me now in this horrible divorce. It isn't fair for those of us who seek justice. It isn't fair that, and you don't deserve the blessed one in marriage. I deserve that because I, listen, I have earned that. This is a direct quote in my office. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but this is a really easy place to get mentally and it can come out in our practice. In Colossians 2, uh, Paul speaks directly to this in another prison epistle. I want to bring it up. Verses 16 through 23 says this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. Just like we talked about in ritual, they're just a picture they're to be celebrated. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, the worship of angels, disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen, and they're puffed up, listen, in their idle notions by their unspiritual mind. I deserve to be blessed. You don't deserve this. You messed up, so I have no grace for you. And it's a funny thing that in the church we all want grace and we all talk about grace but in spiritual community we struggle to give it often he goes on and says um, let no one disqualify you puffed they have lost connection verse 19 they have lost connection with the head who is Christ from whom the whole body supported and held together by the ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow they don't even grow themselves. It's like God causes that. Verse 20, since you died with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in, resta in restraining sensual indulgence. Here's what he's saying. Look, why do you place any value in that? And why do you place restrictions on yourself that are perishing with this world? Because in the end, you can practice all those things and you can misplace your confidence in those things, but I wanna tell you, they do nothing for your heart. They do nothing to stop you from your tendency to be selfish. The only thing that can change that is closest to Jesus. 
When you fall more in love with Jesus, all of a sudden the selfish indulgences they start to fall away. When you submit to the Spirit, as it says in Galatians 5, when you submit to the Spirit, all of a sudden the fruit of the flesh starts to fall off and all, the, all of a sudden patience, kindness, goodness, love starts to come forth from your life. The only command, submit to the Spirit. And He'll grow that. He'll do that. But those of us who hold to what we've done, as if it were value. He says, why, why, would you, why would you do that? And why would you put restrictions on yourself? He says, they lack any value restraining sensual indulgence. And let me ask you this. How many of you have ever struggled with, just a, a slightly, just a little bit, the legalism thing? Okay. And how many of you know it didn't change your heart, had no effect on your eternity, your spirit? And there was no freedom there. In fact, it felt more binding. That's the thing that the Israelites struggle with in the law. And I, I want to give this confession to you. This morning, if you're in your seat and you're going, you know, that's it's one thing for you, Justin, to say it on stage and to say that like as a religious professional, but here's, here's the thing. Let me let you in on a secret. Any religious professional who's worth his weight wrestles with this stuff. Matthew 7, 21 might be the scariest Verses in the Bible. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. You did that for you. Depart from me. I never knew you. That wasn't about me. So I know plenty of religious professionals who are desperately going, I don't want to be a charlatan. I don't want to be heretical. I want to wrestle with my own salvation and I want to know that it is grounded in him and I'm not making the subtle shift to placing confidence in my training or my heritage or my own works. I want to place it accurately within him. Any, any minister worth his weight is doing that regularly and we should too. Hello? We should too. So, um, Verse uh, 3, 3 to 5, and this is, this is Paul. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, not ourselves, and place no confidence in our flesh, none. You might be sitting here and you might think, well, maybe a little confidence, None. I place absolutely no confidence in my training, what I've been able to, what my experience, what I can do. That is, that is how we find those subtle shifts and we walk ourselves towards a lack of faith. We walk ourselves towards something that is not true faith, not pure faith. It's like trying to take that contact solution, something that helps us give clarity and we put Elmer's glue in it and we go, you know what? I'm gonna take this slime, put it on my eyes and draw that contact solution back out of it. It can't be drawn out anymore, it can't happen. You're not going to walk around putting slime in your eye hoping that's going to give you clarity of sight. It's only within the work of Christ. Paul, again, in Colossians 2, says it like this, verses 5 through 15, just 10 verses that give us the hope that we can each have to place our confidence in him accurately. He says this, For though I'm absent from you in the body, this is another prison epistle, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with this really important word, thankfulness. Overflowing with gratitude. Have you ever, have you done a self-check this morning and asked yourself, how grateful are you for the Lord? 
We sang about him. We thought, how, how thankful are we that he offered a gift to us that we ourselves could not earn? And because we received that gift, we have been established as his. Rooted in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Don't walk yourself backwards. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and over every authority. So it doesn't matter how astute these people may look or sound because they were struggling with the same thing in the church at Colossae. They're coming in and they're placing impositions on people who were coming to Christ in purity of faith and then they were being asked to do things that were never imposed on them by Jesus. They were being asked to perform Jewish law as in order to not affect or to offend that. And Paul says, don't let that happen. He is head over every power and authority, verse 11. In him, you are circumcised with a circumcision that didn't come from human hands. Your heart was made pure and the dead flesh, the old self was cut away. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, has raised him from the dead. It also raised you and I. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all sin, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took what we deserved. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What he says here in the end is this. These very Pharisees who who maybe have come to Christ and now they are in the, the Christian church and they're imposing on you a law. He goes, those that didn't convert, but they were you know, raised in the same school of thought. He goes, he made spectacle of those very people at the cross when he defeated the grave, when he did something that you and I could never do. So this morning, the question that we all have to answer is this, where's your confidence? Where's, where's my confidence? Are we placing, potentially misplacing any confidence that we have for our salvific nature, for our own salvation in our heritage? I've just always been in church my whole life. And here's the truth. There are people here this morning that in their own minds, even if they've never said that out loud, believe that. They trust that. And unfortunately, we've been here a long time. And it would be scary to think that you could do this your entire life on earth and never walk into eternity with him. So I, maybe you come from a long line of believers and you have great parents who raised you in the Lord. Be grateful for that. That's a blessing. But your faith is your own. And you can't be free by association. Amen. Maybe you're here this morning, you go, well, but, but like... But I did pray a prayer. That's great. How has your life changed since that moment? Or have you just been hanging to a prayer as if it were the thing that gave you fire insurance, but nothing about you has changed. You're still just as selfish 
and individuals you were that night. I would encourage you, go home, read the parable of the soils. See how many people responded to him in faith that didn't have actual faith. Three out of four, three out of four, the vast majority will find destruction in the end. The road unto righteousness is narrow if you find it. Maybe, maybe you go, well, but, but like, but I've been working hard. I've been doing the right things and I have been doing the right things. I, I, I avoid the wrong and I do the right. Checks and balances. He goes, why would, you, why would you hold your own life and your own faith to something so trivial, something that's perishing? Why would you not enjoy the freedom that you have in Jesus and what he has done by hinging yourself into a world that's perishing and the rules that man has made up that is perishing with it. Why would you do that to yourself? So today, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to answer this. Where's your confidence? Is it misplaced? Is it placed, misplaced in one of these three areas or is it well-placed in Christ, the one who on the cross defeated the grave? This morning, you may be here and you go, I need to talk to someone about this. I want to place my faith in Christ. That's why I'm here. I did this when I was younger and it changed my life forever. And I want to encourage you, if you're here, there are other ministers who would like to talk to you. Their prayer partners will be on the side. There's an altar that is open. The only way that we come to a place where we can receive said gift is if we put down the life that we've been holding to. The one that says we're God and we, we are selfish therein. We repent of that and go, I, I can't save myself. I can't do it. There's no checks and balances that's going to be good enough that's going to earn me faith. I just want to trust in his work. And if, if you're here today and you've done that as a believer, you're in Christ and you're with me, maybe you have today been reminded of the subtle shift that we can each make and you need to recognize like outwardly as an expression, as a symbol, as a ceremony of the fact that you are in Christ and you're grateful. He said, come to me, come to my table and do this in remembrance of me. It was my body that was broken that gave you freedom. It was my blood that was shed to atone for you. And today as an act of worship, as a celebration, not as a ritual that is salvific, but as a celebration of the fact that you have life and what was dead is now made alive, we can remember him at his table. And so Father, this morning as we do come, no matter how we respond, today I pray it would be to you. As, you, as this church is kind enough to give us multiple ways for us to respond. And many times we, we bypass the opportunity to do so. I pray today that we would not. As the altar opens and as the band sings over us a prayer of repentance, I pray that we would be, we would be a people sensitive to whatever it is you desire from us personally and we'd respond. Whether that be to fall on our face at your altar, to find a friend here that is in need of prayer and to come alongside them and minister to them. If it is to go to a prayer partner because we ourselves need prayer, we ask that we would be humble enough to do so. Father, I pray that however we respond, even if it at your table, everything today be done in response and obedience for members of Jesus. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.